HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to Life's a Banquet, a podcast about all things edible, spirit, and plural. Dear host, me, the guy from the lottery, and... Me, the guy from the Micro Machines commercial. Our producer, Armin, just told us we had a hard out, and so now we're going to have to get through this beginning of the podcast very, very, very fast. Nicole, do you have anything you want to say? What's happened to you this week? Are you all right? I'm great. I went to a rock quarry to go swimming yesterday, which is pretty fun, except for you had to wear a live jacket the whole time, which is annoying, but safety first, I guess. Life jacket seems to be your preferred summer accessory, if I if I may. Well, you know... People here care about people drowning. I mean, people, many people have drowned at this rock quarry, so that's why they force you to wear life jackets there so they don't get sued. So interesting. One of my worst fears is stepping in quicksand at a rock quarry, and that's what you really need to be careful of. And I got to tell you, a life jacket's not going to help you in that situation. It might just drag you down even faster. Well, there, I don't think there is any quicksand because the entire quarry is filled with water, and it's 20 feet deep plus. So do you think you're Was gonna- it fun? Yeah, it was really fun. Did you do a cannonball? Uh, no, I jumped off a high inflatable structure, um, but I, I'm not really into high jumping per se, but there is another rock quarry nearby that has like really high jumps and there's videos of people doing like crazy like Olympic flips and twists and all kinds of shit off of the top of that, which I'm like, that's for you guys to do. I'm going to stay down here. Sure. I feel you. I'm not a thrill seeker. I never have been. Um, <laughs> that's where me and Dan Cortez part ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, Does anyone know who Dan Cortez is no, out there? Nobody even knows who the <laughs> Micro Machines guy is that I mentioned earlier. It's just, I'm throwing out references from the 80s and no one's getting them. If you have a crush on Dan Cortez, like I did, folks, please <laughs> write into the show on a postcard. Thank you very much. Nicole, I have something exciting to tell you. Okay, great. I'm pregnant. With joy? <laughs> yes, because I have discovered a new snack at Trader Joe's that I just must tell you about. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Very good. The snack in question is a lentil and rice baked funyun. What? And it comes in a small little bag. 
about like, well, two servings, if, one if you're really hungry for Funyun snacks. <laughs> um, and they don't taste baked. They taste absolutely delicious. Anyone who's even remotely aware of the cultural zeitgeist um, would know what a Funyun was, except for my mother who doesn't? And this morning when we were talking about how delicious they are, because they also make this new product there, which is like a creamy, like goat's milk, like kind of creamy chevron cream cheese. Yeah. And I was like, the move is to dunk the Funyun in the goat cream cheese. And she's like, Yunyun, Yunyun, I love my Yunyun. <laughs> I was like, it's a Funyun. You've never heard of a Funyun? <laughs> she said, no, I'm going to, to me, it's Yunyun. Okay. And I said, okay, baby. <laughs> yeah, we got to let her just roll with that one. Yunyun. <laughs> Yunyun. But anyway, that's all to say that um, do you I'd think like that you to visit are, your local TJs. I know. Do you think these are nationwide? I hope so. If they're not, I'll ship some to you because if I know one thing about you, Nicole, it's that you are a true chip fan. You even had a chip fan Instagram account. I did. Didn't you? Short-lived. Um, yeah. I also ate yesterday. My friend went to the quarry with, introduced me to a wonderful new trick, which is to buy macaroni salad from the grocery store and dip triscuits in it and it's very good that's a nice snack that's good that's snacking good in the neighborhood yeah it's eating good in the neighborhood that's delicious this is totally a non sequitur but i just wanted to make sure that i included it in my <laughs> roundup of the week um my aunt susan and my uncle dave who i adore and cherish came over to my parents house for dinner the other night and we we're all sitting around the fire getting silly. And my, for some reason, Bobby asked, like, how many monkeys I think there are living in Long Island currently. <laughs> okay. And that is silly. I said, I was like, I don't know, 1,500, I guess. Sure. Which I think is, like, too many <laughs> um, as they're well, not native. Long Island is big, though. It is. That's what I said. It's As the name implies, it's quite long. And so, how many zoos are in Long Island? None. There's just the Long Island Game Farm where I was actually once spit on by a monkey, but uh, to my recollection, there was only like maybe five monkeys there, chimpanzees. So you think that there's 1,495 more somewhere else. Hiding somewhere else. <laughs> but in my research, when I was trying to, I was like, all right, well, let's take to Google. I'll see how many monkeys um, Google reports are on Long Island, and then we could times that by like four. Um, I didn't find that information, but I did find something <laughs> about how in like the year 19, I, have, I don't remember exactly what year, but like maybe the early 20s, um, somebody left like a bridge that they were supposed to, like a tote bridge they were supposed to pull up at like a zoo in Long Island, mm -hmm. um, like in Hawhog. And um, they left the bridge down. So like 147 Reese monkeys one of them just led all the rest of them and they just left and they uh, took over the railroad. <laughs> that sounds amazing and like a great short film. <laughs> they became tiny conductors. <laughs> well, I've been watching The Umbrella Academy, which is, I'm late to the party and I'm troubled by the presence of a talking CGI monkey that wears clothes. I don't like it. I know it's in the comic book or whatever, but I'm just like, you know, I tired of all the cgi just use a real monkey and make it talk come here close <laughs> exactly take a real monkey tie some strings to its lips pull them up and down like we used to do we put back peanut in the day. butter on its mouth that's what they did for mr ed how hard could oh it be? that's true peanut butter is a very crafty way of making things look like they're talking it's so sticky mm -hmm. yeah also what was i gonna say oh i watched crawl that movie where they're trapped in their basement with an alligator during the hurricane <laughs> oh my god how was it i've been dying to see that for like years now i keep forgetting it's um it's incredibly 
improbable. You have to suspend your disbelief so much. <laughs> sure. Of course. It seems very unlikely, although Mike Sala would really be the one to ask about this. Yes. Well, so basically, well, spoiler alert, there are a lot of alligators or crocodiles. I don't really know which one. All of them are CGI. They didn't use a single real alligator. And I was so upset by that. I was like, why can't they just take, why can't it just be like the 90s? Like, you know, when they use real things instead of CGI things. I was like, like in the movie Twister, where everything is completely probable and all of it tornadoes are real <laughs> i know it's amazing that cow is real they're just like get up there you fucker <laughs> um it's the greatest movie of all time it truly is no cgi in that film at no, all no it's pure it's um, totally pure <laughs> uncut <laughs> twister it took years for them to make it because they were just waiting for big tornadoes that they could film without dying um yeah. and that's that's what i want to see so anyway, yeah, basically really, really big crocodiles. I think probably larger than they are present day. Um, for some reason, you know, their house is flooding. They're near a river, I guess, of some kind um, or the sea. It's not totally clear. Um, and there are literally hundreds of alligators basically trapping them in their home because they, you know, they have like a vendetta against them because they stabbed one of them with a screwdriver, which is like not how alligators deal with their problems. You know, like, first of all, no, they don't even gather in large groups usually. Um, cause they're territorial. We learned this cause we looked all this up. Of course they're territorial. Okay. They, if there were more than like a family, then they would kill everyone else because they're like, this is our family's area. Get the hell out of here. They also, right. there's a scene where you see all the alligator eggs, sort of like a throwback to Jurassic Park, I guess. Um, and <laughs> um, so I guess you're supposed to assume that like the mother alligator is protecting her young, which is like sort of true, but the article that we read said that like, whether or not an alligator protects their young is dependent on the individual alligator. <laughs> some sure, of some it, of them are like, I don't want kids. I never wanted kids to begin with, yeah, but now abortion is illegal yeah. in Louisiana. Um, but also sometimes if the conditions are stressful in their environment, they will eat all of their young as well. Um, yeah, and to them. which my friend said, well, I'm glad it's legal for alligators to have abortions and not us. Yeah, that's what I just said. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, They're doing everything screwy down there. What's going on? Yeah. So anyway, and then at some point, um, the dad, cause of course the, the main character is like a, a professional swimmer, which is the only way she can make it through this film. Um, and her dad's like, at some point he yells, swim, because he's like, you're fast. <laughs> he's like, you're faster than them. That is not true. So Michael Phelps, who is one of the fastest swimmers on earth, swims about 4.7 miles per hour. Alligators can swim 20 miles an hour. So there's literally no way wow. that this chick is going to beat hordes of alligators. But somehow she does. Um, spoiler alert. So anyway, it was fun, a fun romp, fun to make fun of. Lots of jump scares, lots of unnecessary gore in terms of like broken bones and shit, which I don't really like that. Um, no, I don't like broken bones. It gives me PTSD. Yeah, I just don't want them, like every time someone breaks a bone in a horror movie, it like pokes out of the skin. I'm like, let's have some imagination. I know, it's gross. Plus, after spraining my ankle, which P.S., I re sprained the other day for fun. <laughs> um, I that popping sound, I was like, I can no longer like hear or think about anyone breaking a bone. And even before then, I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, I don't like knowing what's in my body, to be honest. The blood, the bones. I don't mind even seeing like 
I'm not like freaked out by blood or whatever, but like, I don't like thinking like when someone breaks, like snaps a bone or something like, oh no, I have bones. <laughs> Mine bones. <laughs> no bones about it. There's bones in there. <laughs> Sorry. This bitch has got bones. <laughs> <laughs> it's like bone thugs in harmony. <laughs> um, okay. Enter the bone zone. So we're on a time crunch. So I have an announcement, unless you have any movie updates you would like to share. Well, only quickly that I watched one of my favorite movies of all time, Something's Gotta Give, <laughs> last night, <laughs> and cried myself to sleep, but that's about it. Mm, yeah, there's no alligators in that, thank God. Um, Not yet. So, I have a major announcement to tell everyone on the podcast, all of our listener. You're um, pregnant! I am not pregnant. Um, we, I was doing some research on Ben and Jen today, and what I found out- They're dead! They both- <laughs> Sorry. They are dead, Sarah. It's not funny. They're both dead. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> since they're both dead, um, they died of broken hearts. They, um, we've decided to shift our celebrity coverage to inc- be more inclusive because not only are they dead, um, therefore all the stories about them are going to be boring. Um, you know, I feel like we, this Ben and Jen has run its course. So we need to give other celebrities an opportunity to be discussed completely out of context on our podcast. <laughs> I completely agree. So the Ben and Jen corner is now going to be vaguely celebrity, celebrity gossip related corner from now on. You're welcome. Everyone. I love it. I love this move. Nicole sprang this on me as we're about to record. And I said, absolutely. Giddy up. Love it. Let's get these two <laughs> the hell out of here. <laughs> Their happiness is boring. Mm-hmm. It's so stupid. They died of happiness, literally. Yeah. Goodbye. Rest in peace, you two. <laughs> you two lovebirds. <laughs> Rest in peace, you two nuts. Um, okay. So I'm just going to go ahead and move into part two of how did I get this drinking water in New York City? <laughs> um, if you're ready, that is. I was born ready. Okay. So if you'll recall, last week we ended on a cliffhanger probably kind of on an actual cliff because New York was weird back then, um, in the year 1814. Now we're going to fast forward to the year 1832, at which point not a lot has changed in terms of how the water is getting to New Yorkers and the terrible quality, et cetera, et cetera. So everyone's kind of like, yeah, the water here sucks, but you know, it's really great because there's a Barney's or whatever. Um, and um, then there's a cholera outbreak. <laughs> And Uh-oh. in the 1832, in the month of July alone, 2,000 New Yorkers were dead from cholera. Oh, my God. That's so much. that We have Typhoid Mary to thank for that. Um, I think that she was more of a typhoid thing. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> they, call, they didn't call her Typhoid Mary for nothing. <laughs> Literally, they did not. <laughs> um, so then eventually 3,500 people perished from cholera. And I don't even know how there were people left in New York after this. Um, wow. 80,000 people, which is at that point was one third of the population left because they were like, this is fucked up. <laughs> but some of those people still died of cholera because <laughs> they didn't leave soon enough, which is not Uh-oh. funny, but a little bit funny because they're skeletons. They don't care. Um, yeah. It took 20 more years for the people in the world to discover that water systems transmit bacterial diseases. 
<laughs> so they're, they're just like, why does this keep happening? We cannot figure this out. I don't understand why every couple of years, thousands of New Yorkers die of like water diseases. So as they're drinking out of the toilet, they're yeah. making like a toilet martini. <laughs> uh, literally. So um, the treasurer of the board of health, which I didn't know was a job that you could do that would like, whatever, that you could make decisions. But apparently you, you don't just carry around the box of cash. Um, the treasurer of the board of health was like, hey, you guys, listen, why don't we use a different source of water that isn't filled with dead cats and dead babies and dead rats and laundry soap ben affleck jennifer aniston and these lopez stupid like wooden leaky pipes that are filled with tree roots why don't we try (laughs) to use um the croton river and everyone was like dude you are fucking mental that's 40 miles away which of course doesn't seem that far away today but if you remember they didn't have cars so they had to like walk everywhere or get in a horse and buggy so you know 40 miles is probably like ten thousand miles um But at the time, the Croton River was, like, super clean, super tight, super humongous. And he was like, I don't really see a problem. It was also surrounded by rough terrain, so development could never encroach its waters, which, of course, is not totally true. Um, but the, the way that they would have to do it was have to build an aqueduct that would bring the water down. And the thing is, is that no one had ever built a waterworks that had gone that distance. So people were like, this is going to be hard. Um, but then luckily for you guys who live in New York, um, eventually that treasurer became a Senator and he created the Croton water commission. And he was like, we're going to do this bitches. We're going to make this aqueduct. We're going to do it. It's going to be great. Sick bro. And so then they're like, Hey, major David Bates Douglas, do you want to help us do this? You're a civil and a military engineer. And he was like, okay, dudes, this is going to be no problem at all. All we need is a masonry conduit that cuts right through the hills on an incline so water flows from the power of gravity. Super easy. So easy. Um, And then he was like, and then we're going to have this adorable Roman aqueduct bridge over the Harlem River, and it'll be so cute, and I'll be, like, famous for making it or whatever. Um, But thankfully, I guess, they had a democracy at that time, so... They went around and asked like the six living New Yorkers who still lived in New York, who were of course <laughs> all men, to vote whether or not they wanted to actually have this aqueduct or not, because it was going to cost them tax dollar money or whatever. Sure. Um, and people distributed pamphlets being like, do not fucking vote yes for this. It is, I don't know what their argument was, but they just didn't want to, you know, change series, people. Yeah, they're like, are you sick and tired of drinking your own feces and dead kitten blood? And they're like, no, we're not. They're like, they're like <laughs> not yet. You're like, you're still alive. All six of you are fine. <laughs> um, the newspapers, though, recognized the importance of the project. I'm sure had nothing to do with corruption or ties to the government or anything like that. Um, and, you know, in this case, at least it was beneficial. Um, so the newspaper was like, listen. Your taxes are going to get increased, but you're probably not going to get cholera every three months. So, like, it seems like a good deal. Um, so, eventually, the voters came out, and they were like, yes, let's have this fucking aqueduct, you guys. Who cares? Um, however, they didn't quite get this in order soon enough because eight months later, <laughs> a huge snowstorm hits New York City, 
all of the water froze, like the water and the cisterns, the water, like all the available water is frozen, including the East River. Whoa. And then, you know, temperatures were like below zero. Um, and the, a warehouse caught fire in the city and there's no water. So, oh my God. you know, all the buildings are close to each other because it's New York. So one by one, all of the buildings start to just catch on fire and nothing can be done about it because there's no water. So then the Navy comes down the East River in boats and like cut busts through the ice with their ice buster boats. Um, but all they have on them is gunpowder because the only way they can stop this is because with by blowing up the buildings so they don't catch on fire. So basically what? they're in their Navy boats and they're shooting the buildings that aren't on fire yet so they don't catch on fire and then hopes of stopping the fire from spreading throughout the entire city. <laughs> now that's what I call music, volume 10. That's a plan. That's a plan. So in the end, 700 buildings were destroyed. <laughs> oh my God. That's like the old problem. I can't even imagine there was 700 buildings. I know. Why do they need 700 buildings? Only four people live there. Um, <laughs> and only two people died. So now the population at this point is two of New York City. <laughs> Whoa, dude. <laughs> Those must. Those are the days. Um, so yeah, the fire broke out. Everyone was like, "Guys, can you please get this water scenario figured out?" And then Douglas, Major Douglas, was fired because apparently he was grumpy, potentially bad at his job. You know, just always asking for more money. They were like, "Get this guy out of here!" Um, and they hired this other guy named John B. Jervis. Um, because he made the Erie Canal and they're like, that seems good. Like we like the Erie Canal. Um, and so he took over the job and he was like, well, it looks like literally nothing has been done, but maybe because he didn't have enough money, who knows? So Jervis is like, dudes, what do we need to do? Make a 41 mile path, make two reservoirs in Manhattan. And this big dam is going to raise the river 40 feet, which seems scary to me, but apparently it was fine. It's wild. I know, 40 feet. And so then 60 million gallons of water per day will flow into these reservoirs that are in literal Manhattan. Um, and also, I'll give this guy his Roman bridge. So we'll make the, the bridge, which is a high bridge. In, it goes over the Harlem River, which is still there today. Right. So this is mostly completed by 1842. Everyone is super excited. They put hydrants everywhere for fire, but also for free drinking water. So I did not know this, that fire hydrants were actually also used as drinking water for people in the 1800s. That's interesting. I mean, when you go to Rome, that's how it is. There's, really? I don't know that those are fire hydrants. I don't think they're fire hydrants as well, but they're like free drinking fountains everywhere. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. I guess because they didn't have the plumbing systems, obviously, in 1842 that they're eventually got going these days. Um, so everyone's like, thanks for the aqueduct. We're going to throw a party. Um, and then, you know, six years later, a million people live in New York city, a huge population boom from two to 1 million in only six years. That's a lot. <laughs> Those two people got really busy. <laughs> um, and they're like, we don't have enough water. So they made the new croton aqueduct, which raised the water even higher. And the original dam just is completely submerged in water to this day. Whoa. Isn't that weird? That's, yeah, that's haunted. I know. I it's kind of spooky. Um, so then the first of the two reservoirs that were in Manhattan were, was demolished and basically just filled it in. 
so they can put the New York Public Library on top of it. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, and then in 1898, they got the Catskill and Delaware aqueducts going, um, which became world-renowned for their good job at bringing water down. Um, Great water. And so at that point in 1898, only 3% of the water was coming from the original Croton dams. In the 1930s, the other reservoir was completely filled in and made into Central Park's Great Lawn. And yeah, so there's a reservoir under there. That's wild. This is so interesting. Nicole. I know. So then by 1955, the original aqueduct system was basically completely shut down, but you can still go walk around on it in the old Croton Aqueduct State Park. So that whole park is basically like the way that it is because of the way that they lifted up the river and then they did all this crazy like landscaping essentially to like keep everything stable. And that's basically what you walk around in in that park and all those trails and stuff. They were not originally there. Um, Oh, cool. And then eventually the high bridge was widened in the middle because that used to have those little Roman arches all the way across the river. Um, but the big boats could not get through there. So they knocked out the middle, made that one big steel arch. Um, but it is the oldest bridge in New York City. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, that's my story of how you got it's water. It's fascinating. I know. It's so fascinating. And I wanted to add one little thing to what we were talking about last week, which is that I don't like know a ton about our founding fathers because um, I don't think I think they're all like kind of shitty and I'm not interested really. I mean, I know little bits, but I never saw Hamilton and I knew there was a reason why I didn't want to because it's stupid. Yeah. And um, <laughs> but I did just finish listening to part three of a four part series of the dollop about Aaron Burr, who I vaguely knew was a decent human and didn't really know that he was like a leftist hero. And I highly recommend anyone who wants any further listening about Aaron Burr to check out the dollops. Three, it's going to be a four-part series on on Aaron Burr, um, and we discussed him last week. It's very, very, very interesting. Well, we didn't make him sound very good last week because he was sounded like a kind of a greedy bank-loving guy. No, he's not. He's a he's a true leftist like hero of his time. Okay, and was like, yeah. So everybody check that out if you want to learn more about Aaron Burr. As I didn't know, I did, but I ended up because there's no other podcasts in my queue that I wanted to listen to. <laughs> uh, but I sure am glad I did. All right. Well, that was so interesting. Let's take a little break here. We're going to come back with a riveting story on my end. Goodbye. Come back. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. 
Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. Okay, well, folks, guess what? It looks like we're back. Here we go. <laughs> and I, Nicole, I'm going to talk to you. I was trying to think about like a New York restaurant um, that I wanted to talk about. And I'm going to chat about a restaurant that I unfortunately never had the opportunity to go to because it was a bit before my time. But I do know a lot about this restaurant because I've read two books about this woman and about her restaurant. And uh, it's also been featured in some of, you know, the greatest kind of, well, my one of my favorite movies of all time, even though I know it's not okay to say anymore, Manhattan. Um, so I'm today going to tell you and you, listener, and the other two people in New York, about <laughs> Elaine Kaufman and her restaurant, Elaine's. Nicole, oh, have you ever heard of Elaine's? Yes, of course. Yeah. So Elaine Coffin was like a, a self-proclaimed and actual icon and New York legend. <laughs> She's like, I um, am an icon. <laughs> she did. She was, she said like uh, to someone who was making like a documentary, they're like, she's like, I'm a fucking icon. And she was right. She was a fucking icon. <laughs> and she was a really interesting and cool woman in a way that I can, I don't know. I just really like whenever I read stuff about her, I just, I feel for her because I think she had a certain kind of life and grew up in a certain kind of time where she was gruff and and hard living and mean sometimes. But she was also, from what people say about her and all these stories, like really kind and really like helped make people's lives good. And in both of the books that I read, some people said like that their whole lives changed because they went to Elaine's just because of like the people that she met because of who she was. Like sometimes she would just give people like a couple thousand dollars if they were down on their luck and be like, here you go. You look like you could use this. But anyway, so I'm going to talk about Elaine Kaufman. Got my information from the rape by in an article uh, by Natasha Drax from a New York times article and from AE Hotchner's book. Um, Everything happens at Elaine's and from Elaine's a book by Ann Phillips Penn. Both of those books are, oh, it's all happening at Elaine's. Both of those books are really, really awesome and fun, especially like the audiobook. I want to read them. Yeah, really good. And the, um, the Amy Phillips Penn one you can listen to on uh, Audible for free. And it's like little kind of people, like different authors and people who went there remembering her, like little stories. And A.E. Hotchner's book was on Audible and now it's not anymore. So you just have to get that one at your local vintage bookstore. Cool. Um, or off eBay. Okay. So I'll give you guys a quick preface about Elaine's. Elaine's was a bar and restaurant in New York City that existed from 1963 to 2011. Dang. And it was free. I know. Isn't that such a long run? And it was just like her the whole time. It's crazy. I mean, except for a couple months after she died. Um, and it was frequented by many celebrities and especially actors and especially, especially authors. So like Elaine's was known very much as a bar for writers, literary agent, literary agents, people in publishing, 
um, journalists and, you know, lots of celebrities went there too, but it was like super, super, uh, well-known for being uh, like a writer's hangout. Um, okay. So it's established by Elaine Kaufman, as we already, um, have come to know who was like, she, you, like people often said there's no Elaine's without Elaine. So like she was at the restaurant every single night. Um, and it shut down after like a couple months after she died, which we will get to in a moment. So she's born and raised in Queens, kind of in like, I believe it was like 1920s. I have to like go back and look, maybe 1930s. Um, she's born and raised in Queens and she grows up on the Upper West Side of New York in the Great Depression time. So yeah, that's the 20s, right? The late 20s, 29 was the stock market crash. So yeah, she's born in the 30s. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so she develops a thick skin because of this and her first experience in the service industry comes in 1959 when she's helping her then boyfriend, Alfredo Viazzi, run his restaurant in Greenwich Village. And then she like kicks this man to the curb. She gets sick of him. <laughs> she's going through a lot at the time. She's like battling anorexia. She's like trying to figure herself out. And um, so she opens her own place on 2nd Avenue and 88th Street. And she opens with a partner at the time. And then similarly to what happened to me, this guy quit. So it was like kind of going to be debated whether it would be called Elaine's or whatever this douchebag's name was. And so since he quit, they called it Elaine's. <laughs> it could have been <laughs> like Larry's. Yeah, it could have been Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, but luckily it's Elaine's. <laughs> um, okay, so Elaine's is being described as a certain kind of like old New York, very dark, wood paneling a long bar, white tablecloths, flowers, and like big and magazine covers along the walls, but like simple. It wasn't a fancy place. It was like kind of like a taverny place, but just elegant and, and nice. Has, has anyone out there, no, please answer back right now. <laughs> has anyone out there seen Manhattan? If you have, it's the uh, first scene in Manhattan where Woody Allen is sitting with an actual child on a date. And, uh, <laughs> and he pretends to smoke awesome. <laughs> Yeah, um, but that was Adelaine's and Woody Allen, whatever you think of him, um, was like probably the biggest regular Adelaine's ever. He apparently ate there. He's, he says that he ate there every single night for 10 years and he had his own table that like basically no one else could sit at. Um, every single night for 10 years? That seems mental. Every night for 10 years. I know. I'm like, what about on your birthday? What about on like you never went on the, vacation? the 4th of July? He must have gone yeah. on vacation. What about when he was filming a movie outside of the city? I know. Um, Maybe he didn't. I'm sure that's an that. exaggeration. <laughs> that's true. He didn't. He really did. I can't think of any Woody Allen, except for Vicky Cristina Barcelona, but that was like long after Midnight in Paris. Anyway. Um, okay. So she opens it up and it takes a couple years. She opens in 1963, all like, and then all of a sudden kind of catches fire. And that area of, like, it's called Yorkville. Mm -hmm. um, and that time was, like, not a place where people were opening restaurants. It it's just was, like, very desolate. Where the black and white cookie was invented, allegedly. Oh, that's so interesting because I was going to do the black and white cookie. And then I was like, there's not really much to it. Yeah. It's kind of boring. <laughs> it's, Who cares about this stupid cookie? It's black and white, really. One half chocolate, the other is vanilla. Uh, the vanilla half is better. End of story. Um, okay. So, anyway, people start, like, becoming really loyal customers um, and it like becomes evident that Elaine, um, is partial to writers and not only is she partial to writers. So like writers start like coming into the uh, restaurant all the time. And she also really liked for people to like eat, like people kind of had to eat when, when they went there. Cause she didn't really want it to become just like a bar where people are coming to get drunk. 
So the food was always described as either like serviceable or not very good, but Elaine always wanted you to eat. And if she wanted something, it was going to happen. So people are always eating, I guess, lots of like kind of mediocre food. But (laughs) there's plenty of places that I love that the food is mediocre at. And you know what I mean? It's so secondary, like whatever. Um, Okay. So anyway, one thing that Elaine definitely did that made people kind of well, first of all, love her and want to come back is that she had like long running open tabs for people that sometimes would be open for years and years and years, but people didn't really take advantage of her. Like when they started doing well enough, they would like, um, pay like not only their tab, but they would pay the tab of like some young writer or something who was struggling. Yeah. It was like a really good vibe. Like, and a lot of, a lot of people described it as being like more of a, a social club than a restaurant. Um, so anyway, A.E. Hotchner in his book just describes Elaine and he says, Elaine, quote, Elaine treated us royally. You paid when you could. And if you couldn't, you would someday. Uh, Elaine's generosity often paid off as most customers cleared their tabs eventually and added generous tips as well. As one bartender explains, a French patron had purchased a champagne bottle after a champagne bottle and then disappeared. He showed up years later and not only paid off his bill bill in full, but also left a $5,000 tip. Whoa. Yeah. So then her literary, um, like, following begins to attract elite celebrities. And long before Elaine became the raucous and riotous celebrity hideaway, it is now a small piece of quintessential New York saloon uh, form where the meritocracy was created and expected. It became more of an unofficial members club than an eatery. Uh, where the individual value is measured not by the wealth, but by one's repertoire and of interesting antidotes. So um, there's no reservations. Anyone can come in. However, if you were kind of a nobody, you would often get sat in the front, which was called Siberia. (laughs) Well, isn't it a small (laughs) restaurant, though? Yeah, it's a small restaurant, but anyone who wasn't cool got sat in the front, and all the regulars called it Siberia. (laughs) Well, I guess I would be sitting in the front. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that. I'm like, hmm, I would have loved to go there. We would have probably gotten treated horribly and like <laughs> embarrassedly had to sit in like the front window. Um, okay. So, so one night somebody like walks by Elaine and they're like, hey, where's the bathroom? And she says, take a right at Mike, uh, walk straight and then take a right at Michael, Michael Caine. <laughs> um, I guess he was a regular. <laughs> he was a regular. I remember that too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, like, all kinds of crazy stories from, like, Hunter S. Thompson setting fire to his breath after finishing a bottle of chartreuse. Jack Nicholson uh, was seeking shelter from an obsessive female fan. And playwright John Ford Noonan punching a hole in the window. Rude. Um, all, all kinds of crazy things happened. This is from the New York Times article. So anyway, Elaine was like known to kind of just like be the like ultimate hostess and she'd like switch between tables and her like big, bright, you know, uh, flowing gown. She had like crazy style. She wore these like giant tortoiseshell glasses. She was just like a presence and a force. Um, and everybody called, like all of the regulars called her mama. And so like in this one guy who was telling a story in, um, one of the books I was reading was saying like no one who was a regular there would ever be like, do you want to go to Elaine's? They'd be like, do you want to go down to mama's? I just think it's very, it's very sweet. Um, okay. So a lot of people said that she hated women, but then from listening to some of the essays in that book, um, like it wasn't necessarily that she hated women 
and apparently she had lots of close female friends, but that she maybe gave women a hard time and favored men. And who knows why? Like, maybe it was because she felt intimidated or maybe it was because she couldn't, like, I don't know. We don't know why. But Well, she was people, into writers and there were no women writers back then. <laughs> that's a good point. And actually, it's really interesting. This woman said that she asked Nora Ephron to go with her to dinner there in, like, the 70s, like, just the two of them. And Nora Ephron was like, what do you mean? Like just the two of us? Like apparently you couldn't even like go out to dinner. Like if you were just two women going out to dinner, it was like a weird thing. (laughs) And like women weren't really allowed to go out to dinner alone. Like there was like some woman who was like almost asked to leave the restaurant because she was dining alone in the sixties. Pretty rude. You got to be accompanied by a man. Which is where we're headed back to right now. That's true. Your father or your husband must accompany you and sign all of your medical documents. Yeah. So our brother... Our cousin. Um, okay, so one time she gets in a fight with Norman Mailer and he says he's never going to come back. So he writes her this big, long letter complaining. <laughs> and she, like, reads the letter and she just writes in big letters, boring on it, and then mails it back to him. But he loved Elaine's so much that he came back a couple of days later and he had a birthday party there. Okay. Well. <laughs> um, Sylvester maybe she Stallone. Likes men because they're simple creatures. Just kidding, everyone. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) When they're just evil. When Sylvester Stallone refused to hang his expensive coat on the universal coat rack, she blankly asked, why, is this the only coat you have? In 1998, Elaine was even arrested and subsequently spent the night in prison after she slapped a customer complaining that he, quote, got in my face. Oh, my God. Who was it? I don't know, but she also would like throw trash cans at like photographers. One time she threw a trash can at a photographer and it missed him and hit a limousine. Filled with celebrities. Filled to the brim like a clown car with celebrities. <laughs> Woody Allen. <laughs> Guy Tillis. Um, Okay, so anyway, everybody described her as bold and brave and fearless and confident and in charge. Um, trash can even throwing. On her- Very brave. <laughs> Alleged trash can hurler, even on her 80th birthday, Elaine confessed she still had to, ref- had to refrain from throwing punches at customers, <laughs> telling Vanity Fair, quote, there was a time when men were men, and now they call a lawyer. <laughs> well, they obviously called a lawyer back in whenever you got arrested, so calm down. <laughs> I know. So another thing that was, like, really big at Elaine's was, like, table hopping. So you'd, like, go in for the night and there'd be all these, like, interesting people there and everyone would kind of, like, hop around from table to table and switch seats with each other. And, like, it just sounds, like, so interesting, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so cool. And she'd, like, sit with you at your table. And especially people were, like, if you were ever sitting alone, obviously not not a woman because women, women weren't <laughs> allowed to go there alone. Um, no, but if you were sitting alone, she would come and sit with you and, like, eat with you and, like, eat off of your plate which I think is hilarious. Um, so yeah. And they were also saying that she really didn't make like hardly any money. Like, I mean, I'm sure she made some money, but like, because there was no turning of tables. Like if you came in for dinner at Elaine's and you were a regular, you would stay like the entire night. Right. Um, she paid, as I mentioned before, she paid people's tabs. She just, you know, gave money to people when they needed it. It was really, really, really quite sweet. Um, and she'd do like tons of networking and she'd meet young authors or young, like, people who she thought had talent or she believed in and hooked them up with some of the older, more established people in there. And then eventually people would be like, and then that table would turn. And the person who had been the younger person who needed a break or to meet the right person would get older and be that person to somebody else someday. So there's like a lot of mentorship going around. And also she tried to hook people up on dates. And like this one guy was talking about how his wife had recently passed away. 
in an accident. And like a year later, she's like, are you ready to date yet? And so she hooks, starts hooking him up with other people. And then he ended up getting married to one of the women. She just sounded like a great person. How did that woman um, get in there? I know it must've been later. I think eventually women were allowed to eat by themselves in like <laughs> the late nineties. Um, okay. So uh, like, as I mentioned, there was like crazy things that happened. There was all night poker games. Uh, again, Hunter S. Thompson memory of this is, this is one where he's drinking shots of 151 with a rifle across his lap oh and God. a surprise performance by Barishnikov. <laughs> Okay. I'm hoping all these things happen at the same time. <laughs> that would be intense. I know. Wild. Uh, Jackie Gleason used to jump behind the bar and bartend. And one of my favorite things is like one of my favorite celebrity photos of all time is that picture of like Mike Nichols and Carrie Fisher standing in like a restaurant kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I think he has like a cigarette in his hand. That is at Elaine's. Oh, that's cute. I know it's a great photo. Uh, Billy Joel includes the lyric. They were all impressed with your Halston dress and the people that you knew at Elaine's in his 1978 song, Big Shot. Um, as we mentioned, Manhattan in 1979, the opening scene is filmed in Elaine's as was a scene in Celebrity. Um, yeah, so just like a pretty interesting history. I'm sure there's so, so much more. And actually, I know there's so much more because in both of these books, it's like jam-packed with different stories about authors and celebrities and movie stars, like all these crazy things. It's, you know, remind me of, Nicole, a little bit of, um, especially the A.E. Hotchner book of Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. Mm, yeah, it's also like, it sounds kind of similar, like the oral history aspect. It sounds like the Please Killing, which is like that post-punk oral history book in oh, New York. It's yeah. really good. I've never read that, Legs but I know of it. Oh, it's really good. Cool. Um, but yeah, no, very, very, very interesting and very fun if you want to read about like old New York and kind of like bygone places that um, it's sad that we don't really have stuff. I was trying to think, I'm like, there's no place like that today. There's no place that feels like a real social club or like a, just a place that will be remembered in years and years. I feel like New York is just like, <clears throat> I don't know becoming less like you go to other countries and there's these establishments that have been there for like hundreds of years you know and new york just like i don't know it's kind of cycled america in general right we don't have a lot of respect for institutions in terms of like dining and bars and stuff yeah i mean obviously like new york is way different now and for many different reasons but i also think that like the way people socialize is vastly different too because of the a hundred internet and all that shit like those people all they had to do at home was like watch like public access tv so like there's like, yeah and like the local news go to the restaurant um so but that's cool i miss that kind I of mean, thing yeah i mean the thing yeah but it is also like it just was different then and i still think that there are like literary gathering places but it's just not the same way where like everyone would go there also i can't even think of a literary celebrity right now i guess i should read some more books <laughs> yeah shakespeare no i'm just kidding yeah. um okay so then in 2004 elaine is named a uh, new york living landmark by the new york landmarks <laughs> conservancy and she when she accepts the award she says i dedicate this to george plimpton Aww. who was one of her best friends and like one of the best regulars at elaine's if you ever look at pictures of elaine's george plimpton is like in almost every photo um, okay. Unfortunately, Elaine Kaufman dies from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, otherwise known as COPD and pulmonary hypertension on December 3rd, 2010, which is also my grandmother Vi's birthday and the day that I got into my accident. How old but is not she? But not in 2010. Um, she was 81. Okay. So she was pretty uh, old. 
she lived a good life, a really good life. And like, you know, she talked so much about how she didn't have any family and how this was her family and how she was just like, she, I think she like really deeply loved us. And as someone who used to own a restaurant, I'm, I can identify and I'm sure there was like a lot of stress and a lot of problems, but I think for her particularly, I don't know that I've ever heard of a job perfectly suiting a person more than this. Like if anyone was meant to own a restaurant, it's Elaine. And even though I'm sure that there was things that we would think are unsavory today or maybe even illegal, you know, and how we like think about how restaurants should run and what's okay and what's not okay. This is to me in some way just grandfathered in to being acceptable. Were there servers at this restaurant? Yeah. How big was it? I don't think it was huge. I mean, I know it wasn't huge. It was just kind of like, I think of it as being kind of maybe like the size of Marlowe, maybe a little bit bigger. Okay, that's that's pretty small. So Siberia wouldn't be too far away. You could still like catch Steve Martin in the corner or something. Exactly. If you had to go to the bathroom, you could pee on John Waters. Um, um, I was. What's there now? Like a Chase Bank or something? I don't know what's there now, but she did leave the restaurant um, to her longtime manager Diane Becker. But Becker shut down the restaurant soon after, closed on May twenty six, twenty eleven. Um, Becker explained her reason for closing the restaurant quote, the truth is there is no Elaine's without Elaine. The business is just not there without her. Oh, I know. It's really sad. And they did try reopening Elaine's. I remember maybe in like 2013 or something, there was like a reopening, but it wasn't called Elaine's, but it was something else. And it like, I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. It was when I was first coming to consciousness around like restaurants or whatever like Mm -hmm. that's when I had in the early years of having Brucey and I remember being like oh my god like I you know I knew the lore of the lanes and thought it'd be so cool to go to the new spot but it didn't materialize into anything sustainable um I just want to finish up quickly with a piece of an article that A.E. Hotchner wrote for Vanity Fair and it goes a little something like this folks (laughs) Elaine is in essence a fictional character compounded of one part Damon Runyon's Nicely Nicely Johnson and one part Dorothy Parker's Big Blonde. She has the dramatic presence of Sophie Tucker and the brassness of Rosie O'Donnell and the street smarts of Toot Shore. As a matter of fact, one night around two in the morning, Elaine, the singer Bobby Short, who if anyone doesn't know Bobby Short, please listen to the Bobby Short album Live from the Carlisle. It's such fucking joy and jazz standards. Um... Okay, Bobby Short and a few others were at PJ Clark's having a drink with Danny Lavezo when a waiter came over and informed Elaine that Toots, who was also there, wanted to meet her. A few moments later, the hulking figure of Toots appeared at Elaine's table, a bit unsteady from a long stint of drinking. He studied her for a while, and then he said, Elaine, I just wanted to take a look at my successor, wherein he departed. Elaine is indeed the successor of all the big-time saloon keepers who went before her. She presided... She presides over her uptown domain with benignity and unpredictable wit, two-fisted pugnaciousness, and a remarkable insight into the human condition. Beyond, uh, behind her large eyeglasses, her eyes, eyes of laughter, of compassion, of fury, miss nothing that transpires. She is just as insecure about her success as she was the first day she opened knowing full well the fickleness of the restaurant going public. So she works studiously at maintaining the curious ambiance that is her saloon's hallmark. Quote, I live a party life, she once said. Elsa Maxwell used to have to send out invitations. I just opened the door. Aww. I know. And so that's the story of Elaine Kaufman and Elaine's. A brief story, but definitely go out and do the further reading 
those two books are both incredible, as is this Vanity Fair article by A.E. Hotchner. That sounds really great. Also, apparently there is a cafe in there right now. What is it called? Cafe de Alsace. Oh, wow. Amazing. Um, well, maybe it's good. I do like a good French brasserie or brassiere, as my mom says. And the fries do look good. Sick, bro. Well, <laughs> I wish that I could time travel to go back to Lanes and dine there. And I'm going to pose the question. I asked Mary last night as a joke, but I think it's fun if we're going to think about um, this restaurant. What is your dream dinner guest table, dead or alive? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me how many monkeys are in Indiana. <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, I'm not good at this question. I don't like, I don't know. I just don't think about people like dead or like, I don't know. I just don't think about people that way where I'm like, Oh my God, I would love to have dinner with this person. Cause if we don't know each other very well and they're a complete stranger, it's going to be extremely awkward. Totally. I mean, but I guess you just have to assume that you've all become somewhat like friendly at the bar over drinks and then you're sitting down to dinner. Um, I guess I have no idea. I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it on the spot. Okay, fine. What did you do? Um, well, I like choose it. We were just like choosing different ones each time. So I don't know. I'm just going to spit ball off the top of my head. Um, Bill and Ted. The characters um, or the actors yeah, from who the, play them? From the excellent adventure, the characters. Oh, so they can be um, fictional characters too. Of course. It can be anyone. Okay. Um, Cardi B. Mike Nichols, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, and uh, Carrot Top. Oh, that's a whole dinner party. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, okay. just one person is too awkward. You can't just have well, dinner with one. Well, that's why I was thrown off because I'm like, this is going to be so uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable no, no. right now. <laughs> dinner party. Make it as weird as possible. Okay, so dinner party, we would do like <clears throat> Nora Ephron. That major guy who got fired off the Croton Bridge. Sick. Um, <laughs> um, let's see, Martha Stewart. And <laughs> uh, Reggie Miller. This is a great dinner party. This and, is what I'm saying. And his sister, who I forget because she's a better basketball player than him. So I should know her name. But Reggie Miller's sister, forgive me, but you're invited to dinner. Um, and that's, that's enough. I don't have that many seats around my table. Yeah, no, that's fine. But this is the kind of thing you could have expected at Elaine's, a weird table of people or celebrities <laughs> <Who are> ghosts. <laughs> and regular people who some of our ghosts and you would all sit around together. And that is why I think it's so cool. And also how many monkeys do you think there are in Indiana? Hmm. Well, we do have a zoo here. So I guess like well, in the whole state of Indiana, I bet we have multiple zoos. So I'm going to guess like 68. Oh, wow. That's such a low figure. I don't know why I thought there was 1,500 in Long Island. <laughs> that would have had to be some like Planet of the Apes type situation. Well, that's I a like, lot of monkeys. I like that you couldn't find out how many monkeys there are. <laughs> People don't report monkeys. If you have a monkey, you're not like putting it on the census. You're like hiding <laughs> that monkey. You put the monkey in a little outfit and be like, this isn't a monkey. It's my girlfriend. <laughs> This well, is my nurse. Well, let me find out how many zoos are in Indiana first. I can't believe there's only one zoo in the entire island of Long. Yeah, and it's not even really a zoo. It's called the Long Island Game Farm. There, I mean, there is a train, like a little tiny like choo-choo train that runs through it, but it's really not much of a zoo. I have a lot of traumatic memories from there. I got bit by a billy goat. 
put on by a tam- chimpanzee. There's a lot of divorce <clears throat> error memories from the Long Island game farm. I try to like blanket from my memory, but there were definitely monkeys. We know that. And goats. There are six zoos in Indiana. Indiana. I don't know if all of them contain monkeys. Yeah, I think 68 is a good estimation of how many monkeys that includes home-owned monkeys. People do own a lot of monkeys in their homes. Is it legal to own a monkey? No, it is illegal. But people do it. Um, people do it. And they, then monkeys rip their faces off a lot of the time, which is why you shouldn't own a monkey. Well, it looks, it looks like actually you can own a monkey. So Arizona, Mississippi, Indiana, and Tennessee have partial restrictions making it illegal to own an ape, but not a monkey. So you can own part of a monkey. No, you can own, you can a, own. a monkey, but not an ape. Okay, got it. Got it, got it, got it. So, well, fascinating. Yeah. Guys, you learn something new here every day, and pretty soon you're going to be getting all kinds of interesting celebrity gossip, starting with how I saw Daniel Craig the other day walking down the street, and he was hot. Daniel Craig used to live in my friend's apartment building. Um, they lived right in, um, shoot, on the east, Lower East Side. I can't remember the neighborhood, but they, he lived in the penthouse on the top of their building, so they would see him in the elevator all the time. Oh, my God. He's so hot. Uh, now he lives in my neighborhood, so call me. Um, all right, folks, let's get the hell out of here. It's swelteringly hot. Remember my mouse turning the air conditioning on. Nicole, it's been quite a time. Folks, it's up to you, New York, New York. We love you. Hasta pasta. Bye-bye. Life's a Banquet is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.